Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Noel's with us again. Uh, and uh, it's morning edition at oh, HowStuffWorks. That's right. The Indiana Jones Chronicles. He's in this this article. Man, you can't do archaeology without talking about Indiana Jones because you can't spell it without <laughs> Indiana Jones. Uh, and do you know why? Because as this article points out, archaeologists are one part explorer, one part scholar, one part P.T. Barnum, one part B.F. Skinner, <laughs> one part scientist, and one part historian. Which is true, and that is exactly who Indiana Jones was. Oh yeah, plus. He knew his way around a whip and a gun. Well, you, you know, if you're going to get the Ark of the Covenant, you're going to have to whip a couple of dudes. Right. That's what Steven Spielberg says, at least. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he got that across quite plainly. Yeah. The whip thing was a good idea. That was neat. Yeah. Throwback. Sure. Although he never whipped a cigarette out of somebody's mouth, which I was waiting for like the whole movie. Oh, that's a parlor trick. Yeah. Well, it's pretty cool. <laughs> it is very cool. Uh, did you have an intro? Did I spoil it? No, that was okay. as good an intro as any. Great. You know me in archaeology. That was the first word I could spell. Um, was it really? I sh- let me take that back. That was the first big word I could spell. Okay, I'm sure I had word. like dog and, and cat and all that <laughs> down first. Yeah. But I remember being in second or third grade and spelling it and the teacher being like, wow. And I was like, yeah, I'll bet you're impressed because I'm young and I can spell archaeology correctly. And she said, go sit in the corner. The reason why I could spell it is because I'd already been studying it for years i've always been fascinated by archaeology yeah i could have seen uh you doing this for a living my buddy jerry um out in portland jerry's both of our buddy no no no, different jerry oh okay um jerry in portland male jerry i gotcha is uh jerry purvis is a (laughs) there you go that's why we have last (laughs) names. he was a history and i think anthropology major too and wanted to get into archaeology so all those disciplines like it's a science that is heavily uh butted up against the humanities. It's pretty neat. Well, it's kind of absorbed them, kind of like some early uh, bacteria-absorbed <laughs> um, mitochondria, you know? Okay. And used it for itself, the yeah. power. Wow. Yeah. But it's, it's very much in that vein. Like, archaeology started out as a very straightforward, simplistic discipline. And at one point, finally, the archaeologists got bored they said this this could be so much more, and they expanded, which we'll talk about when we get into the history of archaeology. But just the the word itself, it does definitely conjure Indiana Jones. Yeah. Um, and he was one part this, one part that, and yes, archaeologists are that. But the entire pursuit of archaeology is so unwieldy. There's so much to it. Yeah. Documenting all human industry from the very recent past to the furthest reaches into human history that the the field is broken into a lot of different disciplines, and even those are broken further into subdisciplines. So much so that, like, if you take a forensic archaeologist and put it up against a glacial archaeologist, you'll be like, "Are these two really the same in the same field?" Are yeah, they? They are, but they definitely you might not have a lot to talk about. You know? Yeah. You're like, how about that ice? And the forensic guy's going, "How about that gravesite?" Yeah. That like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Crime is crazy. Uh, they're also broken into geographical areas sometimes or, uh, like time periods. Yeah, like, uh, you are a Mesopotamian archaeologist. Yeah, like that's your specialty. Right. And that makes sense. Uh, there's underwater archaeologists, which I think I, 
I wrote a few of these articles back then. I think I did one on underwater archaeology too. It's so interesting. That we didn't touch on, but that's super interesting because the trick with all archaeology is preservation. Mm-hmm. You don't just dig in there with a shovel and like pick up the vase like in the movie and shake it, see what's inside. All right. It's a lot more technical than that. And with underwater archaeology, you know, that stuff is so fragile. Mm-hmm. You have to transport it in the exact state that it was in. So like if you find a book down there, you have to put it, that book in a tank of salt water at the right temperature. A book? Well, yeah, sure. Okay. Well, you know, I'm not saying it's been down there a thousand years. <laughs> right. You mouth last right, how about this? A stopwatch from okay. the Titanic. Yeah. Uh, a pocket watch. Sure. You have to transport it in a tank of salt water at that temperature. Right. With the right amount of sand to wherever you're going to take it, to your laboratory, essentially. And then put on an expensive exhibit. Yes, exactly. Um, and underwater archaeology isn't necessarily just stuff that that sunk, although it, that part is so fascinating. Like things that are supposed to be above water yeah. that are now submerged just take on a whole different attitude to me. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, waterlogged. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's other other underwater archaeology, too, that, that goes beyond shipwrecks. Like they recently found a 9,000-year-old... Um, hunting blind in Lake Huron. What? Yeah, it used to be above water, and huh. then uh, after the uh, Ice Age, the water levels rose and covered it up, and they recently discovered it under 121 feet of water, and it basically consists of some lanes of stone with a cul-de-sac. Wow. Yeah, um, that they would kind of use to shoot caribou through, and then at the end, they're like, the caribou were like, oh, cul-de-sac, and then death. Wow. Yeah, but they recognized this yeah, that's and then cool. documented it under 120 feet of water in Lake Huron. That sounds like a, it perhaps could have been an accidental find. Do you know? I don't know or how they, they looking found for it. that. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But I, the idea that you could look at some rocks and be like, oh, well, this is a hunting blind from yeah. 9,000 years ago used to hunt caribou uh, underwater, that just seems really special to me. That is very cool. Uh, but I mentioned accidental finds because that's one of the neat things about archaeology. Um, if you're an archaeologist, clearly you are going to be uh, have a bee in your bonnet to go find whatever it is, Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> but there's things found all the time just by people who stumble upon them. Accidental right. finds. Yeah. Um, because there's there's junk everywhere. Like the um, cave paintings at Lascaux? Yeah. And when I say junk, I mean that in the stuff way in not, the academic sense yeah not, not worthless it's all great stuff but the the lasco cave in france yeah. was discovered accidentally by some local teens yeah apparently there was a storm and a tree fell over and it exposed this cave entrance that had been covered for thousands and thousands of years yeah the dead sea scrolls mm-hmm. that was an accident yeah a uh, 1947 a bedouin shepherd uh found them and said hey these these look important yeah what else in 1940, four little French schoolboys. That's Lesko. Oh, is that Lesko? Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't know why she didn't put it in the article. Yeah. That is weird. <laughs> she left out that one word. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so let's go back a little bit and talk about how this stuff all started. Because in the you know 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, people really weren't too concerned about the past. Well, that's not true. They weren't looking for artifacts, though, necessarily. Or if they were looking for artifacts, they were just looting it and selling it and maybe melting it down for its gold. Sure. Like the the artifact itself didn't necessarily have any value simply because it was old. 
Yeah, that's a good way to say it. That came about as a result of um, the rise of humanism. Yeah. Which gave rise to the humanities, which basically prized art for art's sake. Yeah. And um, gave birth to the concept that antiquities have value because of their age. Uh, and then the um, the Renaissance, basically. It was birthed from the Renaissance. There was a dude named Flavio Biondo. That was my clumsy attempt. Do you want to take No, it? that was great. Say it again. Flavio Biondo. See? It's so easy. <laughs> wow, you just have to put really like good. energy into it, and then you're Italian. Yeah. I think that's my problem, because I'm fairly low-key, you know? Yeah, sure. Anyway, Flavio Biondo was the first person to create a guide to the ruins of ancient Rome in the early 15th century, and a lot of people say that is the first person you can point to who gave rise to archaeology, potentially. And said, basically, these things that we find, uh, maybe we shouldn't just melt down. Yeah. Maybe we should preserve them, and this is sort of an important thing for the future. Exactly, right. Um, so he was one of the first... And then from that point on, the idea of um, collecting yeah. things kind of took hold. And it was a little nutso for a while. Like people would just go into a there was no there was no aim to preserve the site itself. Right. You just wanted all the artifacts from the site so you could fill your palace with them. Yeah, and I get the sense that there was definitely a boom in the Renaissance and among royalty of wanting things from ancient Greece and Rome and I know the Queen of Naples wanted you know, ancient statues and things to fill her palace and, uh, you know, trying to find out what happened with Pompeii and uh, Herculaneum. Yeah, like, that's that's why they were excavated in 1748 was after their stuff. And Pompeii is really neat, by the way. Yeah. But all of the artifacts, it's totally deserted. Everything that's there is a permanent structure. Oh, really? All of the artifacts have been removed, and they're still in Naples, where they were taken in 1748. Yeah, and we'll get a little bit later on into like who owns this stuff. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. But uh, Napoleon was a big uh, proponent of archaeology. And I know we talked during the uh, King Tut's Tomb episode about Egyptology. Mm-hmm. And he formed the Institute of Egypt, basically a... a think tank in the late 1700s of 175 scholars and uh, it was just that fascination with Egypt and Napoleon was all over it formed this think tank and said go find stuff right and like collect it for me and they published a book too that really kind of loosed uh, archaeology and the idea of archaeology um, on the world is called Description of Egypt that they published in 1809. Such a bland title. It was, but it like created Egypt fever. Yeah. Um, and so that came out in 1809. In 1812, a uh, British guy named Richard Colt Hoare, H-O-A-R-E, he wrote a book called Ancient History of Wiltshire in 1812. And basically... He described methods for excavating methodically. He also um, was the first to identify what are called tells, uh-huh. which are mounds, ancient mounds of basically a city being built on a city on a city oh, on a city on cool. a city yeah. that they've just been continuously occupied for thousands and thousands of years. And then you know who else was a early archaeologist? Harrison Ford. Earlier than him. Uh, don't know. Thomas Jefferson. Oh, really? Yeah. Doesn't surprise me. In the 18th century, late 18th, early 19th century, he was methodically excavating burial mounds um, on Monticello, on his land at Monticello. Cool. In between rewriting the Bible. 
Yeah, he did a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was one of the early ones to methodically do it. So there's like all of this enthusiasm for antiquities and basically what amounts to looting and grave robbing. Yeah. But simultaneously, there's these independent gentlemen scholars who are amateurs because yeah. there is no academic field yet, um, who are creating the, um, the, basically the body yeah. of experimental archaeology how to do it, the methodology, the best practices. Yeah, in the 19th century, a guy named Charles Lyell basically started, um, they called it uni- uniformitarian stratigraphy. Yeah, and uh, which is actually a pretty big hornet's nest. <laughs> is it? Uh-huh. Well, I looked in, into the uniformitarianism period and right. the whole thing is. But what does that have to do with dating? It was a dating system? Yeah, it basically, before then, there was this thing called catastrophism, uh-huh. where basically it was like the Earth is static and it changes only in the face of major catastrophes. Right. Like a comet strike or something is the only thing that changes the Earth itself. Yeah. Uh, uniformitarian stratigraphy basically says, no, that's not the case. And it gave us what we now understand as geological processes, geological time scales. Right. It basically said the Earth changes constantly, but our lifespan is so short we can't possibly witness it. Right. But if you look at this, the processes that take place now are the processes that the Earth has always been subjected to. Interesting. So one of those processes is sediment, uh, sediment deposits. Yeah. And you can date things thanks to sediment deposits because they're actually a predictable thing. So when you're digging in to sediment, you're digging into the past and you can date something you find in that sediment. That's basically what it gave archaeology. Digging into history? Yeah. That sounds like a The idea deal. that you can date from layers of ground. Yeah. It's, it sounds easy now, or not easy, right. but uh, it makes sense now, but back then it was pretty revolutionary. Right. Like, like, that's our worldview now. Yeah. But this is one of the guys who introduced it. Charles Lyell. Yeah. Our hats are off to you, sir. <laughs> and he didn't come up with it, but he was a huge proponent of it who gained a lot of traction with it. Uh, you're talking about methods in um, Flinder... Uh, Flinders Petrie, boy, what a great name, in 1904 wrote a book called Methods and Aims in Archaeology, and that was one of the first ones to sort of break down how to uh, responsibly excavate a site yeah, um, and not just to go in there and loot it. Um, and that was a big turning point, that t- the 20th century, the turn of the century. Yeah. Uh, the Fin de Siecle, I think is what it's called. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, that was a huge turning point in archaeology. It really represented the when methodology took hold like there was a guy named heinrich schliemann yeah who discovered troy basically um and he uh just basically went in and started tearing through the sediment and he identified a bunch of different layers of occupation Mm -hmm. but he didn't really document them like he should fortunately he had an assistant named uh wilhelm dorpfeld (laughs) yeah (laughs) And he kind of took a different approach to it, a much more methodical approach. And all of this took place at around the same time. So, like, even on the site of Troy, um, this change from pillaging to methodology took place. Yeah. They probably got tired of hearing their uh, workers say, well, broke. Right. You know? Yeah. They're like, all right, well, maybe we should slow down. And uh, it broke. Be a little more uh, judicious with the shovel. Right. Uh Dating um, old things is a big part of archaeology. It's no good just to find something. You want to know exactly where it came from uh, because, well, one reason is because it has more value. If it's older, that was probably what led the dating charge 
But um, there's a bunch of different ways they can date, and they have dated over the years. Uh, something can be self-dated. If you find uh, treasure that's stamped with a date, then mm-hmm. it's done the work for you. Uh, relative dating, if you find something that's with a bunch of other stuff that you can date, then you can probably say, you know, this stuff from King Tut's Tomb is probably all around the same time period. Right. Uh, clay varve counting. Mm-hmm. And that is counting varves, which are little laminated sediments that accumulate, and that can help you out for about 5,000 years back. No, it can go even further than oh, that. Oh, really? Yeah. How far? I mean, as far as you want to go in the sediment. That's, oh, really? That's part of the um, uniformitarian stratigraphy. Oh, I was misreading that. I'm sorry. Our, our written chronology only goes back 5,000 years. Right. So you so can you extend it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then the idea, we, we didn't give, uh, we didn't pay proper homage to um, Darwin. Because his, we did a whole show on him, right? But in this one, I <laughs> oh, mean, okay. Um, the, on the origin of species, um, the that presented the idea that mankind had a history that went back way further than a few thousand years. Yeah, and that kind of uh, inspired archaeology to look around for it more. Right. You know, uh, and then some of the more recent ones, which we could probably do shows on a couple of these. Uh, carbon dating, radioactive carbon dating, mm-hmm. potassium argon dating, and thermoluminescence. Um, that measures light energy, the intensity of light energy. Yeah. It's amazing. It, you can calculate the last time an object was exposed to sunlight through, through thermoluminescence dating. And with potassium argon dating, you can date things back two million years, if you believe the Earth's been around that long. <laughs> so um, just a little more about uh, the history of archaeology, if you'll indulge me. Please. So methodology took place in the early 20th century. It became about that time an academic discipline. Funny enough, they didn't start applying the scientific method to archaeology necessarily until like the 50s or 60s. What? Yeah. That's weird. Um, but it had its own method. Uh-huh. And the method among archaeologists was you find an artifact, you date it, and yeah. you catalog it. Yeah. The archaeologist's job was to date and catalog uh, and ultimately contribute to this growing body of knowledge that was the timeline of human history. Yeah, and preserve, obviously. Right. Yeah. But it was like these tools are older than this tool, right. which means that the people who made these tools were the predecessors of the people who made these tools. Yeah. That was it. Archaeologists got bored in the 50s, and they said, we're explaining how these um, these tools have progressed or human industry has progressed, but not why. Right. And right when they decided to start answering why, archaeology became a far more interesting field. It became a multidisciplinary field. And all of a sudden, they're bringing in experts in ceramics, experts in metallurgy. Right. And, and grabbing all these people from different fields sure. and saying, how can we answer why this changed? What led to what change? And archaeology at that point in about the 50s or 60s became the um, very far-flung, widespread, all-encompassing uh, discipline that it is today. That's awesome. Yeah. So with help. Yeah, with a little help from their friends. From their expert friends. Yeah. All right. I guess we can talk uh, right after this message break a little bit about um, how things start off if you want to go dig something up. Okay, buddy, we're back. Okay. Uh, field work is a word that you're going to hear in archaeology a lot. And depending on who you talk to, it might entail the whole process or just out in the field, like at the actual excavation. But I think most folks nowadays 
uh, consider field work the excavation and all the pre-work. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of research that goes into it beforehand. Right. In offices and schoolrooms and libraries and what have you. Yeah, and I think it's either all, it's everything including excavation or it's all the stuff that leads up to excavation. Yeah. Is considered field work, right? Yeah, I would call it pre-dig activity. That's what I would go with. That's what you go with? So, so excavation <laughs> and field work are two different things. Uh, for you. Sure. Okay. Which if I was fun. opening up my own archaeological firm, that would be my model. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to be really, there's not a big problem with it either way. Either. Okay, good. Um, so when you, when you do find uh, something, like you said, um, there's a couple of different ways things can be found. They can be determinedly, doggedly sought after, which can be part of the field work, going through yeah. the stacks in a library, looking for references in ancient literature. Sure. Um, and just kind of trying to figure out where something might be. That's what Schliemann did with Troy. Um, he read the, uh, the Iliad, I believe, which, um, describes the Trojan War, right? Uh-huh. Um, and said, look for clues. Uh, yes. Yeah. And he, and that's when he was like, I'm pretty sure this is where Troy is. Yeah. You're like a sort of a history detective at that point. Exactly. Which is Indiana Jones. After that, you may, you have to go get some permits. Yeah. Of local course. permits. Yeah. Uh, and you're also going to want to go get a grant because, you're probably not going to fund this out of your own pocket unless you're somebody like James Cameron or whatever. You know what I mean? No, but grants uh, can come from rich people who may want some of this stuff or maybe a museum wants to pony up some money if they really want uh, a certain exhibit in their museum. Right, or your university that you work for um, should underwrite some of it. Yeah. But you get your you get your funding, you've got your grad student assistance. Maybe if it's going to be a really big dig, you um put a flyer up at the local senior center, <laughs> see if anybody wants to come help during the days because I don't know that the elderly would be good th- diggers. No? No, they would be awesome diggers and here's why. How? Okay. It takes a lot of patience to excavate a site. When you excavate a site, you're basically cordoning it off. Yeah. Um and by the way, we've left out a really important point here. There's something called geophysical prospecting, yeah, which basically uses uh, some pretty incredible devices that measure differences in electromagnetism or electric conductivity in the ground, yeah, and then basically gives you a pretty picture back saying, "Here's something that's not rock." It's like a advanced, super advanced metal detector, basically. Yeah, um, but it can also detect other really nuanced stuff like paint. Yeah, it's an everything detector. Yeah, it's just good stuff. So you, you're not just, you may have read a book that says, I think that this ancient site is here. Right. But then you don't just start cordoning off and digging. You do a survey of the site to look for stuff. Yeah, and see if it's likely that it might still be there. Right. Yeah. That's a huge step that if you miss, you're a terrible archaeologist. Right. So I'm sorry we left that part out. Now that you've got a, uh, basically an, a subterranean map of the site. Yeah. Um, you coordinate off and you start digging usually by meter. Right. And when you're digging by meter, you literally remove just one thin layer of that square meter at a time. Yeah, because we, we said earlier preservation is key and they were breaking things early on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one way to not break things is to go super, super slow. Super slow. Just a little bit at a time. Yeah. And I know everyone has seen the footage of, Archaeologists on their hands and knees blowing things with little little brushes, mm-hmm. and it is that um, meticulous. Yes, might drive some people crazy. 
It certainly would. Like construction worker guy probably doesn't want to be on an archaeological dig. No, but it's funny you bring that up because construction worker guys often find themselves in the midst of an archaeological dig. Sure. Construction uh, yields a lot of archaeological evidence. Like, for instance, in Miami recently, they uh, came across a 2,000-year-old Indian settlement. Oh, wow. Yeah, the Tequesta Indians um, had a little spot in the middle of what's going to be a downtown Miami's, <laughs> no, like their newest development. Oh, really? And the developers are like, fine, just take some pictures and let's get on with it. And right. the locals are like, yeah, no, we need to preserve this better. So they're trying to figure it out. But th- it happens a lot. Remember when we talked about the huge tunnel, the underwater tunnel they dug in Turkey? Oh, yeah. It, during construction of that, they ran into an ancient site. So they had to bring in archaeologists. That's what's called a rescue excavation, where it's going to be totally destroyed by a group of people who really could care less one way or another what happens to these artifacts Yeah. Um, in the name of continued industry. So the archaeologist comes in, documents everything, the placement, all of that stuff, dates it, and then that, what what is documented from the excavation, that becomes the primary source for everybody else to follow. Yeah. The, by excavating, you're destroying inherently. Yes, and... Each state in the United States has their own state archaeologist. Um, if you go to do a construction project in Rome, let's say, get ready for patience because yeah. when you, when you're trying to build something in Rome, I think they, uh, give out about 13,000, uh, building permits a year. Yeah. But they require an archaeological, uh, evaluation of each one. And it's, some say it, it can cripple, uh, progress in Rome. Yeah. But if you've ever been to Rome, like, it's easy to appreciate the fact that they're doing that. Yeah, sure. I mean, course. it's just the city built up against ancient, ancient ruins. Yeah. It's really, really wonderful how they preserved everything. Yeah, it's neat. That, that's uh, the only place in Italy I've been. But um, That's a neat town. Yeah, it was awesome. I think uh, someone I was with was complaining about how dirty it was. And I was like, it's been here a long time. Right, yeah. Like, you know. No, it does have the funk of age over yeah. like the whole thing. Sure. But yeah, it's still, you just kind of... It's not going to smell like Montreal. Does Montreal smell good? I think Montreal is noted for being pretty clean huh. for a city. I can see that. It's yeah. a fastidious city. That's what I've heard. <laughs> You've never been to Canada. You haven't? Nope. I grew up near the border, so I've been plenty of times. Yeah, and hey, early, early spoiler, we may be going out to Canada this fall. Crazy. To Vancouver. Yeah. Which... So Vancouverites, listen up in the near future. We may be coming to do some a live show there this fall. Man, they're going to go nuts if we don't actually go through with this. No, nah, they, they won't remember. Okay. We're going to go, though. Okay. All right, so we talked a little bit about um, the transition from uh, ar- from grave robbing to archaeology. Mm-hmm. Looting archaeological sites and is, is still a thing. It didn't go away completely. So each country and each state in the United States, like everyone has their own way to deal with this stuff. There are a lot of archaeological acts that have been passed throughout the world to preserve things and to make sure there's not looting going on. But despite all their best efforts, it still happens. And uh, trying things like putting up a big sign, this is don't dig here, do not enter, is sometimes a more of a welcome invitation. Yeah. So sometimes they get tricky. And in, uh, in New York, they do things like environmentally sensitive, do not enter. So they'll try and trick folks into thinking that, you know, all you who enter will die. Right. Um, but... People pay money for artifacts still, and there is a black market. 
People pay money for artifacts, and those people are very frequently called museums. Well, and private collectors Yeah, a lot of times. Apparently, like, dinosaur bones are super hot right now. Nicolas Cage has one that's contested. Um, it was it was known to have been removed illegally yeah. from a site that was never officially recognized um, by basically some this couple that goes in and like they're really good at finding oh really dinosaur bones and then they sell them on the black market wow and apparently he's got a really awesome skull of course he does yeah <laughs> um, he also has a house in New Orleans uh-huh. that was this. Like a torture murder house in the 19th century that this uh, voodoo really? priestess owned, and like that's his house in New Orleans. Like the site of just bloodbaths. Wow. Yeah. He's a weird guy, man. Yes. I know when he married uh, Patricia Arquette, he did some crazy uh, list of things, or maybe she came up with a crazy list of things that he had to do to marry her. Yeah. And uh, he did them all, and it was a lot of. It was like a big. Stupid rich person treasure hunt. Oh, yeah. Like, buy me a Scavenger hunt. (laughs) No, it was more creative than that. Like what? Oh, I can't remember. Like, find me a black rose. Um, All these things that are hard to come by. Huh. I gotcha. And he did it, and he married her, and then he divorced her. Right. So it's a a happy ending. Um, But the black market. Sorry, back to it. Uh, If you're in Peru, they estimate they have lost about $18 million worth of artifacts and goods uh, on the smuggler's market. And so they, their institute of culture... Um, they register, they register their historic sites and they require that all the collections are registered. Um, they partnered with the International Council of Museums and basically all these international museums, they're, they're trying to get together to thwart the thriving underground archaeological goods market. Goods? Collectible goods, sure. Sure. All right. But that brings Good us sundry. <laughs> that brings us to the interesting point on who owns the stuff. That's a great question. For a very long time, it was museums um, because they were the ones who sent in professional looters, archaeologists yeah. at the time, um, to go in and basically rob a uh, developing country of its antiquities and riches and history and culture, basically. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of cases... The uh, government in charge of the time was totally complicit. Like, for example, when um, Yale sent in uh, Hiram Bingham to Machu Picchu, uh, and he came out with a lot of artifacts from it, the Peruvian government was totally in on it at the time. Yeah, I'm sure that the high officials were getting tons of kickbacks from Yale for it. But nowadays, 100 years later, Yale is giving back its Machu Picchu artifacts. Yeah, there's been a big move toward trying to get back things. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because the Peruvian government has said, oh, wait a minute, like we're less corrupt than we were before, and this is our cultural heritage, and that belongs to us. Like, yeah, you've had it for a 100 years, but like that was ours for thousands of years, so yeah. give it back. Not necessarily Machu Picchu for thousands of years, right, but right. there are plenty of antiquities that museums have had for a very long time, Right, but really belong to the the source uh, country. Yeah, and that's a big sticking point. Um, every country, like if, if you want to know who owns an artifact, if you find something, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to depend on where you are. Every municipality, every state, every country has their own laws and as far as finders keepers laws, they right. call them. Uh, if you're in New Zealand, a lot of them are dated by time. Like if it's 
uh, newer than a certain age, go ahead and keep it. Mm-hmm. If it's older than a certain age, you got to talk to us about it. Uh, found, not older, when it was found. Well, it depends on what country. Some countries have a, a date on how old it is. But I think the date is when it was found. Yeah, certain countries for sure when it's found. Certain, it's the age of the object. Um, it just depends on where you are. And by, and the date of when it was found is usually the date that, that it comes after whatever act was passed. Yeah, exactly. So in New Zealand, for example, if you found something prior to 1976, which is when the Antiquities Act of 1975 came into effect, yeah, um, you get to keep whatever you find, right? Right. If you found it after 1976, then you have to you have to alert the local authorities. Right. Uh, if you're in Sweden, um, that has some pretty interesting laws. They say if if there's more than one object at a site, then you have to report it to the government. If it's just one thing that you find, you can keep it. Yeah. Um, and they uh, have a finder's reward to encourage people to be honest about it. Um, and if it's only the single object, you'd still have to report it if it's partially made of a precious metal or copper alloy. But if it's if you're in Sweden. You find an old wooden bowl. Right. I love this example. And in it's, your that's the only thing you find. Then you get to keep it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's really interesting, though. Um, the United States has the National Historic Preservation Act and the Archaeological Resource Protection Act. And they claim, I think, uh, the site must be at least 100 years old and remains must be related to past human life or activity. Uh, that means you have to... Uh, report it to the government. Right. So it's like really like granular. Oh yeah, depending on where you are and what the law is. That's just two countries. Like um yeah. there's there's something called treasure trove law, which is basically uh, it's this, but it has to do with finding a bunch of riches. Yeah. where that are old enough that the owner is clearly now dead. Yeah. No one can lay claim to it. And that they were placed in a, a place where um, they, the, it shows intent for them to be retrieved. Right. Like they were buried next to a tree or something like that, rather than buried in a grave. Right. Because a grave would indicate that they were meant to stay there yeah, with a dead sense. body. So if you find a treasure trove, all sorts of laws kick in. Like in, in, uh, in the UK, in, in England, you know, the Romans were all over that place. So people find like hordes of Roman coins, like when they're tilling the ground in their farms. Right. And it used to be like, well, that was yours. But that's not the case any longer. Yeah, sunken uh, treasure, that's a big controversial mm-hmm. uh, area, too, because a, a lot of those are private companies right. going after what they think is a lot of dough, Do you know a lot that of gold. That's where the concept of uh, the camp thing going down with the ship came from. How's that? So uh, I was listening about the ferry disaster yeah. and, and like the, the whether or not the captain was supposed to stay on or the Costa Concordia. The, the tradition of the captain staying with his ship isn't that the captain's just, well, the ship's going down, so I'm supposed to die. Right. The, the captain is supposed to stay on until the ship is basically totally underwater. And then he can get off. It, it has nothing to do with him dying. Right. He's supposed to stay on because under maritime law, as long as the captain's on the ship, it's not up for salvage. But the moment the captain leaves the ship, it's anybody's, anybody who wants to go salvage the thing, like that boat has been abandoned once the captain is off the ship. So the captain's supposed to stay on until it's basically not salvageable anymore. Oh, okay. Then he can, he can leave. Gotcha. So if a, if a ship were just to partially sink, 
then then it's, and it's like, still salvageable, right? And there's no captain. Yes, then it, you can claim it. Apparently, but the captain is still, you know, on top of the front of the boat. If he's anywhere barely, on the boat, barely hang, yeah. like sticking out of the water. He's like, I'm staying, so you have to stay too, bartender. <laughs> That's interesting. Hit me up with a Bellini. <laughs> uh, UNESCO in 1970, the UNESCO Convention established, tried to establish some international standards for cultural property. Um, but here's the deal with all those international organizations. They can't demand that countries join. Right. But they can encourage it, and uh, more than a country, a hundred countries have ratified it so far. Yeah, and, the, uh, the thing is, is like even if you join and ratify it, you can still violate it. Yeah, sure. International law is so toothless; it's ridiculous. But um, under that convention, though, it's like you said; it's usually uh, they usually side with the source country of the object as right. far as ownership goes, which is good, and that seems to be the prevailing win now. Like the the if the source country wants to lay claim to something, you should give it back. Yeah. It's part of a cultural heritage that got scattered to the wind in the 19th century when museums were, again, employing basically professional grave robbers to go get them a bunch of stuff for the museum's collections. And yeah. now the tide's being reversed in a process called repatriation. Remember we talked about that in the, um, yeah, the Shrunken Heads episode? Right. Like those shrunken heads are being repatriated back to the source countries. Shuar. Yeah. Uh, partage is something that worked for a long time up until... The early 20th century, and that is basically when uh, you dig up, you, let's say, excavate a site, and you find a bunch of great artifacts. Um, the country itself keeps most of the stuff, but the digger can keep a couple of things. <laughs> yeah, and they they don't spell out exactly how many things because it was part, it wasn't like a law. But for a long time, if you like, you know, excavate a site and like, hey, I want to keep these three things. Mm-hmm. You you can have the rest. And the country's like, great, that works great. It's like sharing almost. Yeah. And it's not almost. It's exactly sharing. And so we were talking about the black market being pretty hot for antiquities and um, artifacts. There's this um, group called the International Council of Museums. Yeah. That basically created a list. Um, it's called the Red List that they put out. Uh, I think on a regular basis, but then they'll put out emergency ones too when suddenly like a black market in a certain area heats up. Right. And it's uh, pictures of specific items and descriptions saying this item and things like it are most likely to be smuggled and illegally sold in the black market because right. there's a big market for them right now. It's really interesting to go check out on the- Almost um, like a most wanted list for artifacts. Yeah. But they'll, they're, it, like all the different artifacts that they have are really- really cool to just kind of browse through and they have it by region and country and stuff like that cool what's it called uh the international council of museums you go to their website and look for their red lists those guys party too you ever been to one of those conventions (laughs) (laughs) accidentally man they are wild yeah if you remember an international council of museums convention you weren't there (laughs) you didn't do it right yeah all right i think we should finish up with an interesting little bit about the nazi party because Hitler and the gang were way into archaeology because they believed if they could find proof that Germans were the original Aryan peoples, along with Thor and Odin, uh-huh. the Nordic gods, if they could prove that we were the original peoples and we ran the earth, then that would uh, give them the right to go in and take your country. 
Right. So they weren't just interested in things. They were interested in trying to prove that they owned the world. Pretty much, yeah, that they were descended from the Aryan race, which was the Proto-Indo-European group. Yeah, the mythical. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and that was, I was not 100% clear on that. Like, are, did the Aryan race definitely exist? Well, I think the, the, the Nordic gods, yeah, I don't know about that. Well, but, the, they would be mythical, but yeah. the, were the people who worshipped them, they were the Aryan race, right? Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. So I think that there was an Aryan race, in, which we would call the Nordic or Germanic peoples. So I think whether or not what makes it mythical is the idea of whether it was some pure white race. Okay. That made it some master race in the eyes of the Nazis. So they, it may have been a mythical people. We'd love you. to hear from you if you're an expert on early Proto-Indo-European <laughs> cultures. It was there a group called the Aryans. As as far as the Nazis were concerned, yes, there was, and that the Nazis were the new version of that. Okay, right? Yeah, for sure. And uh, and this started even pre-war in 1935. Uh, Himmler actually founded um, something called the, uh, and this is German, of course, uh, Anenerbe. Is what I'm going to call it. A H N E N E R B E. Don't you speak German? Yeah, but that, it doesn't look like a German word. It's weird. Oh, okay. Yeah, it does look a little French. Um, and it was well, it was known as the Ancestral Heritage Research and Teaching Society. And one of Hitler's big big plans was, you know, when he took control of Germany, he took control of the education system mm-hmm. and everything, and he wanted to flood that education system with Nazi propaganda. And so they formed this. You know, they call it a think tank, but what they really did was a lot of archaeological digs all over the world. Um, like I said, trying to prove, I mean, we're talking Croatia, Greece, Russia, Iceland, North Africa. Mm-hmm. They were going everywhere trying to find traces of what they believe were ancient Germans in the original master race. Right. And, um, one of the places they went was Iceland because apparently that's where Tool, T-H-U-L-E, was, which was the seat of the, uh, Nordic gods, right? Yeah. And they looked for um, something called the Hof, which was a place where they were supposedly worshipped by the Aryans. And they said, we found it. We found this cave, this mystical place of worship. Um, and somebody else came along and said, no, this cave wasn't inhabited until the 18th century. So not the Hof Nazis. And then the British and the Americans came in, occupied Iceland, and the Nazis were not able to come back. No. That's just one example of their failed expeditions, right? Yeah, they had 18 archaeological expeditions total, and none of them b- uh, bore fruit. They were fruitless. They were fruitless. They didn't provide any information that the Nazis were the original master race, because they were not. That's right. <laughs> they were uh, just a bunch of terrible people. All right. I think you can say that. Yeah, I'm taking a stand on Nazis. I dare someone to write in and to defend the Nazis. Yeah. I dare you. You got anything else? No, you beat me to the punch. Oh, okay. No, I don't, man. Um, and uh, if you want to learn more about archaeology, How Stuff Works is a veritable library of articles on archaeology. Everything you could possibly need to know. Basically, you probably would get a degree if you read everything on archaeology. Mm, not true. You could. <laughs> okay. Possibly. Uh, and um, just type archaeology into the search bar at How Stuff Works. Allow me to uh, spell that for you. A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y. 
Is that one of those you have to sound out in your head? No. Remember that was the first I was able to spell that word no, no. early on? I remember, but I just... I, no, I see it in uh, my head. Oh, okay. I see the letters. I think everyone has those words still, though, as adults you sound out oh, yeah. that were difficult. Uh, one of mine, for some reason, is because I always, in my head, had to go B-E-C-A-U-S-E, and I still do that in my head. Mine is uh, pretty much anything with the C-E-I. Uh, yeah. Spread. Ugh, man. Those are obnoxious words. <laughs> uh, and it's even got that accompanying rhyme, I before E, except after C. I know. But anytime I see a C and there's I's and E's involved, I have to go back and correct myself, basically. That's called putting learning into practice. That's a dumb... I'm a dummy. No. Okay. Did oh, speaking of, speaking of dumb, I haven't yet, which means I can still go on <laughs> right, forever. Go ahead. There are new t-shirts available for people who, like, don't be dumb. Yes, Josh is... Uh, Tony Award-winning web series, uh, which <laughs> you is... You have me confused with Neil Patrick Harris again. <laughs> I think it's great. I think anytime if you're getting feedback where people are saying, this is the best thing I've ever seen, and other people are saying, I don't get it at all. Or I hate you for making this. That means you're doing something genius. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so if you aren't familiar with Don't Be Dumb, you can check it out on our website or on our YouTube channel. If you are familiar and you want a t-shirt, you can go to our store um, if you go to stuffyoushouldknow.com, you can get to our store in the top navigation, and uh, there are Josh sent me t-shirts. Are there? Yeah. That's great. Thanks. That's a good one. Uh, but anyway, since I said all that, I imagine, Chuck, finally, <laughs> it's time, at long last, for listener mail. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to call this um, Thieving Mailman. I think this is Ooh, the one. Those are... Sorry, Thieving Garbage Man. Oh, okay. Um, you're like, oh yeah. Uh, hey guys, listen to how tipping works and I have a funny story. <laughs> um, a couple of years ago at Christmas, my mom wanted to leave our garbage man a nice tip. Uh, she says garbage man, by the way. We're not saying that because I know sanitation worker is you're the right. proper term. Nice, nicely done. These are Emily Crawford's words. I should preface this by saying that our garbage man isn't like the typical city pickup guys. Uh, he has a small business and he comes to collect people's trash at their uh, garages with his pickup truck. They must live in the sticks. My parents have a long driveway and don't want to drag the trash can to the end of the driveway, so they hired this guy. Uh, my mom put some money and a card and a white envelope um, as the tip, and she didn't want to tape the envelope to the trash bags for fear of it being thrown away by accident. Smart. Yeah. And it was windy, so she decided to tape it to this iron horse head that we have sitting by a planter next to our garage doors. She attached an image, but um, I don't have it. Just imagine, you know. Sure, I've seen those. With the little ring through his nose. Yeah. Uh, later that day when my That's mom was... Bowl. No, the horse heads, because... No, they have it, like, on the side. (laughs) Yeah, they do. It's on the side, like, uh, from their bridle. I'm I'm talking about this picture I saw. Trust me. It had a ring through its nose? Yeah, it was like a knocker. Okay, I see. That kind of thing. Uh, So later that day, when my mom was... I love that. I looked at this picture, and you're like, no, it didn't look like that. No, you're wrong. Uh, Later that day... Who are you going to believe, me (laughs) or your lying eyes? Later that day, when my mom was coming back home from running errands, she saw that the trash had been picked up and the horse head was gone. The, the garbage man must have assumed it was a gift for him as well, and he took the envelope and the horse head. <laughs> uh, it wasn't valuable, but we also didn't want to give it away. We never got it back and never brought it up to the garbage man. Wow. But I laugh when I think about his reaction was probably, what the heck? They gave me this envelope and a horse head. <laughs> uh, and I just hope he put it in his house somewhere. So I hope you get a little laugh out of this. That we is did. from Emily Crawford. Nice. Thanks a lot, Emily Crawford. That's good stuff. And somewhere, I, there, that 
sanitation worker has your your family heirloom. Yeah. Um, that was a good story. Agreed. You know what it reminded me of? What? The greatest movie starring Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen ever made, <laughs> Men at Work. I never saw that. What? I did not see it. That is a good movie. You need to see that. I know they're soon. sanitation guys and they find something valuable probably that someone else wants and so they're in trouble for it. But you just wrote the script. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh <laughs> but all the hijinks that ensue in the meantime are hilarious. Great right. supporting cast too, including Chainsaw from Summer School. <laughs> Boy man. I love your taste in movies. It's it runs the gamut. So uh is that it? That's it. If you want to tell us a cute story about your family, we'd love to hear those. Uh, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at discovery.com. And join us at our home on the web, our place for great T-shirts, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 